Welcome to Classic 4x4, the podcast for and by classic four-wheel drive enthusiasts. I'm your host, Chris Bacconi, and you can follow the podcast on Instagram at classic4x4podcast. And you can follow my trials, tribulations, and antics of collecting and restoring classic four-wheel drives also on Instagram at Overland by the Sea. The innovation and the creativity is always there, but is there a, a profit motive behind it? And when you put the two of them together, that's when we all benefit from these great vehicles that they put together. Today's guest I wanted to bring on the show because he is on the leadership team of the ATCA, which is the Antique Truck Club of America. I want everybody to welcome the one and the only Steve Skernovich. Steve, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Chris. Pleasure to be here. So, uh, you know, on the Classic 4x4 podcast, we always talk about community and there is no tighter, larger community out there in any other enthusiast world other than the car and truck community. And before there was Instagram and social media that brought the community together, there were clubs and those clubs had annual events, semi-annual events, local events, chapter events. And that was how the community got brought together. But those clubs are still alive and well and, and a key part of the car and truck enthusiast community. And as far as classic four by fours are concerned, the club that brings a lot of classic four wheel drive enthusiasts together is the Antique Truck Club of America. So I'm very happy to have Steve from ATCA. Uh, he's the VP and board of director with us today. Steve, how many chapters of ATCA are there out there? We have 31 chapters across the United States, and we have one in Canada. We're uh, huh. mainly focused in the Northeast, but we, we just took on a chapter out in uh, southern Idaho and northern Utah. So we're, we're reaching out all over the country. Well, Southern Idaho is truck country, so I'm sure you got a, a lot of members out there. But uh, before we talk about ATCA and what we're really here to talk about today is that the history of four wheel drives. You know, let's talk about yourself. Where did you get, you know, the bug or where did your passion for classic and antique trucks and, and four wheel drives come from? Well, that's a question I ask myself a lot. And uh, I think uh, I had an interest in mechanical things since I was born. But as a boy, there was a farm not far from my home, and I remember an old toothless man who rolled his own cigarettes driving down the farm lane in a homemade tractor that he it was made out of a 1920s Chevrolet car, and it had uh, exposed push rods and rocker arms and no hood. And this man was something to look at for a little boy to begin with, but then he stopped, and I watched those push rods go up and down and work the rocker arms, and I was just amazed. And from that point on, anything mechanical, I was drawn to. And, uh, of course, as I got older and uh, it was introduced to wheels, things that moved, uh, it was just got better from there. That's awesome. Obviously, you got involved in, in uh, with ATCA because you collect classic and antique trucks and four-wheel drives. So what do you have in your collection? I know you have a vast collection, but what's running, roadworthy, whether it's registered or not? Well, uh, starting with the four-wheel drives, I've got a 1952 Willys M38A1. Uh, that I've had since I was in high school. Uh, there's a 1961 Willys pickup truck, uh, 1972 Dodge W200. Uh, I pile snow with that. It's got a little dump body on it. Uh, I've got an M38 that I pile snow with. I've got quite a few other Jeeps that 
are sort of in storage, but they could be made to move if they had to. I have some Brockway dump trucks from the 50s and 60s and a couple of Macs, a Mac cab over in 1956 and a 1966 B61. So that's most of the ones that run and roll. That's pretty cool. You must have a large pole barn or somewhere to store all these interesting class of trucks. Yeah, it takes a lot of space. I do have two big pole barns, and I think that that is uh, my theory in my head anyhow, is that that's my limiting factor. I don't like to see things sit outside, and I can't really stop passing up these great deals I see. So if I can't put them inside, it helps me to not buy too many of them. It's funny. I'm the exact same way. I am limited by my space. If I had a limited amount of space, I would buy an unlimited amount of classic four-wheel drive. <laughs> so uh, I think there's a lot of us out there that are that are like that. That's too funny. You said you had the M38A1 since you were in high school. I mean, was that your first truck? No, not really. I had a couple before that that really never made it onto the road. But that one, uh, my father and I were looking for a Jeep to plow snow with. And we, we, he bought it in 1975. And it turned out to be too nice to put a snow plow on. So we uh, went and got another one. But I drove the heck out of that one in the summertime. And, and when I graduated high school, it was given to me as a graduation gift by my father. And you kept it all this time? Yeah, I've had it 48 years now. Wow. And it's still running, driving in comparable condition as it was back then? Yeah, it's gone through quite a few changes. I've had three different engines in it, uh, and it's had some long spells where it wasn't used when my children were little and I didn't have the time to devote to it. But my kids said to me a couple of years ago uh, on Father's Day, let's do something different. And I said, do you want to get the Jeep running? And we, we dug it out. It still has the 24-volt system, and I found two batteries that would fit in it. And I got the carburetor cleaned up and it had been sitting about six years. And I loaded my kids in it and we went out for two or three hours driving around the trails I used to travel on when I was a teenager. And it was the most enjoyable Father's Day I think I ever had. So ever since then, we've been taking it out a little bit more and giving it more exercise. But it, it's a great vehicle and it's it's pretty much original other than having been painted red by a fire company. What's amazing about Jeeps is you had a Jeep that was in stores for six years. You literally put two new batteries, cleaned out the car, kicked it up and drove it around for two hours. Didn't even change the fluids. No, actually it didn't have any brakes for those two hours, but we were in low range most of the time. And the, uh, the M38 has got a, a handbrake on the back of the transmission that stopped me if I had to. But in low range, you really didn't need brakes. We weren't going fast. We were creeping and climbing around places. But then after I took it home, I did fix the brakes. I put new wheel cylinders on it, whatnot. That is the the testament of a Jeep right there. That is, that's pretty cool. So how did you get involved with the Antique Truck Club of America? Well, they were on my radar. I had been to the antique truck shows locally for a few years, but then I, I went to an auction and I bought an antique truck and I thought at that point I should maybe get more involved with the local chapter, which I didn't. They turned out to be a great bunch of guys and they sucked me right in and uh, I have been with them ever since. And coincidentally, I went to that auction where I bought that truck with the intention of buying a World War II Dodge, uh, a 1941 WC-12. And it went for really high money. And I I was standing there with a pocket full of cash and this old Brockway dump truck came up for bid and nobody bid on it. 
and I had the money and I, so I threw in an offer and next thing I knew I bought the antique truck and it led me to the club. <laughs> hey, everything happens for a reason. That's pretty cool. Since we're talking about the club, let's uh, parlay and, and talk a little bit deeper more about the ATCA. I know you, you guys just had your, your 50th anniversary. I think it was last year or two years ago and you're on your 52nd year, right? So founded in 1971. Yep. That's correct. In, that's in cool. Long Island, believe it or not. Doesn't surprise me. There are enthusiasts all over uh, the world and the country, uh, evidenced by your 31 chapters uh, across North America. So, you know, what's what's the history of the ATCA? How did it come to fruition? How has it evolved over the years? And from there, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about some of the events that you guys have. Okay. Well, as I said, they were founded in Long Island. There were two families that uh, were the real driving force behind it. And they were automotive people. They collected antique cars and they wanted to take their antique trucks to car shows and they weren't very well received. The car people kind of looked down their nose at these old trucks and uh, and they wouldn't judge them and they wouldn't consider them for trophies. And so these fellas decided they would set out on their own and start an antique truck club. And it took off and did pretty well for about five or six years. And they had shows and they grew and uh, they formed a library and it was doing very well. But then uh, enthusiasm sort of waned and some of their members passed on and uh, they went through a lull. And uh, at that point, the leadership was moved to Pennsylvania, which kind of breathed new life into the club. And things really took off then. We, uh, we started to have our show in 1980 and uh, Pennsylvania. And in our second year, we moved it to McCungie Memorial Park, which is located south of Allentown, Pennsylvania. And that show has kind of been the catalyst to not only drive the club, but to drive the hobby in this part of the country. Um, we get hundreds and hundreds of trucks there every year. And it's a great place, as you mentioned, camaraderie. People come there to see their friends as much as they come to see the trucks. And uh, and it's it's been a really great ride. We, we uh, we have had 42 shows at that uh, particular location. Now, last year, I think we had close to 900 trucks. So it's a it's an amazing turnout, and and uh, the club has been growing pretty steadily. We're not a big organization, but we're very friendly, and we kind of strive to keep it family friendly and affordable. We haven't raised our rates in 14 years, so uh, we. we do our best to keep it affordable for everybody. Wow, that's amazing. That event in McCungie, is that your one event that you guys have every year? Or are there different chapters have events, things like that? Well, that is our national meet. And it's a two-day event. And it's held every June on Father's Day weekend. We also have a winter national show that's held by a chapter in Florida. And that's going to be coming up in February, the 17th and 18th uh, in uh in Florida, and that's about seven years on now, and it's been growing pretty well. A lot of the snowbirds from New England, especially, uh, that go to Florida as a routine every year have been taking their trucks down there, and that show has been growing nicely. So that's our other national event. But the chapters, most of them do have shows of their own. Some chapters have several shows, and we all try to support our neighboring chapters' shows. So uh, it, it's really nice. There's probably a lot of I, I would say there must be close to 30 shows a year, at least in the, in the Northeast, that can, can readily be attended by just about anybody. Great to hear. So how many, roughly how many members strong are you at this point in early 2023? We have about 
3,500 members. Uh, a lot of our members are older and we lose them, but we've been picking up new members in order to keep that number steady. So we're very pleased about that. It's uh, it's hard to get young people interested in the hobby. And it's, it's also a, a difficult hobby to start in because it, it's not cheap and it's not necessarily for everybody. Uh, but if you've got the bug and you like that sort of thing, it's the place to be. You'll be good people that you can easily get along with. And and there's a, a remarkable exchange of knowledge between our members. Uh, and that that's one of the greatest assets I think we have is uh, if you need to know how to fix something or where to locate a part or how something was originally put together, we've got somebody that knows the answer. That's cool. Well, I'll tell you, you say that you have your membership uh, base is, is a little older, but you have a great social media presence. You know, your, your Instagram handle, Antique Truck Club of America, has almost 10,000 followers. So, you know, there are people of, of all demographics out there. They might not be direct members, but they're following and watching what you guys are doing. Yeah, that's good. And I, I'm glad I'm glad you mentioned that. My daughter, Mary, runs that and uh, and she does a fantastic job. She's in her 20s and we have quite a few members in their 20s that are involved. And we're trying to bring them up into the leadership ranks and let them you know they are our future and we're, we're trying to let them take the reins a little bit but of course it's it's a, a generational thing and technology has really changed the way everything is done and, and a lot of us stodgy old folks aren't too quick on the uptake when it comes to the modern tech so so there's a lot of give and take but it, it's working well so far hey uh at the end of the day we're all enthusiasts of of classic and antique trucks and there isn't really no modern technology in those <laughs> so that's right that's right uh, you, you got to tell mary uh, that she's doing a great job there's almost ten thousand followers and she's actually the one that connected you and i so i'm very uh, appreciative of that so to all our listeners out there if you don't follow the antique truck club of america on instagram you have to. It's Antique Truck Club of America is their social handle. And also check them out online. Their website is antiquetruckclub.org. Let's switch gears here. No pun intended. Let's talk about one of the more interesting things that most younger people actually don't have any comprehension of. And, and that's the history of four-wheel drives. And, and I think it's very important for the history of anything to get passed down from generation to generation. You've been a student of antique and, and classic trucks, and you're very familiar with the history and the evolution of four-wheel drives and, and a lot of the key players that were involved in, and really brought four-wheel drives to the forefront because these trucks that, you know, early on in their earlier generations in the early, earlier decades, like you, like your story earlier with, you know, the, the farmer down the street, these trucks were nothing other than utility purpose built vehicles that were, were built to do nothing other than work. And that really changed as, as the generations progressed. And you got into the 60s and, and really the 70s and 80s when these, what are now classic four-wheel drives or, or classic trucks, became started to become daily drivers. And, and you had the advent of the, the, the SUV, the sport utility vehicle. But I think it's very important for all of our listeners and everyone out there to know the history of the four-wheel drive. So if you could you know, just kind of tell us from the beginning, what was the advent of the four-wheel drive? Who were the the key players throughout the evolution? And and how did things, you know, really evolve decade by decade? That's a large, broad subject, Gary, but I'll be happy to tell you what I can. 
Actually, as as far as I know, the first four-wheel drive vehicle was actually built in England. It was a steam coach built in 1824, uh, but it was uh, not very practical, but they did have four-wheel drive. The first patented four-wheel drive system was an Englishman, uh, Joseph Diplock, received a patent in 1898. So it was... Uh, it was a long time ago when, when people started thinking about four-wheel drive. Now, the first four-wheel drive car, or the car that's credited with being the first four-wheel drive car, was a, a, a car made in Holland called a Spiker. And it had four-wheel drive, and it was the first car with a six-cylinder engine also. So uh, there were a lot of things going on over in Europe and, 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 uh, and England in those days. But here in America... There were some people that built four-wheel drives in the 1800s, but right around the turn of the, that century into the 1900s is when things started to take off. Um, a gentleman by the name of Cotta built what he called a Cottamobile, and it had a four-wheel drive system that had a central differential, and it drove had chains that drove each of the four wheels. And it was powered by steam, and it actually worked and, and was was fairly successful. But he sold his design to a couple of gentlemen from Wisconsin, uh, Otto Zakow and William Besserdick. And those are two names that uh, are pretty much as important as any in, in the history of four-wheel drive. They uh, started to build a vehicle in their machine shop in Clintonville, Wisconsin. Uh, they had... A Rio car. They were dealers for a Rio car, and the car was fine on good roads, but it would get stuck in the mud, and they didn't like that idea too much. So they developed a system that used the universal joint and a ball socket to allow the drive to be transmitted through a wheel that turned, which is very much like an early Jeep or uh, any of those vehicles that have that large round steering knuckle with the U-joint inside. But that's where it came from, was their machine shop. And they put it in a car, and the car was very successful, and the uh, news of this traveled around, and all of a sudden, the government became interested in it. And the U.S. Army tested their car, and they were highly impressed with the mobility that this four-wheel drive system gave them. And one thing led to another, and before long, the uh, two gentlemen formed the four-wheel drive automobile company, and they specialized in trucks, which were known as FWDs. So that uh, that was just before World War One, and they sold a lot of trucks in World War One. In fact, they were the largest, uh, one of the largest selling truck makers for a number of years. And unfortunately, uh, Otto and William sold the business, and they didn't really reap the big rewards from the wartime production. But William Besserdick and another gentleman went on to form a company you may have heard of, Oshkosh Trucks which yeah. were also known for four-wheel drive and all-wheel drive. So uh, there, there's another company that they touched. And, of course, Oshkosh is still in business. They're a, they're a large specialty manufacturer for the U.S. government, and they make all kinds of vehicles for, uh, for consumer use, mostly specialized uh, construction equipment, but all-wheel drive is their specialty. So uh, that, that's one group that's, that's very interesting. Uh, I want to digress a little bit here maybe speed ahead we, we talk about uh, willie's jeeps and i was brought up calling them willie's jeeps but of course the man behind the name was john north willis and the name was properly pronounced willis rather than willies 
So I just say that so people know it because I'm always going to call him a Willie's Jeep. Mm-hmm. But I would like to talk about John North Willie's because he was a very interesting person in, in, in the history of the automobile. He was from upstate New York and he was uh, a great salesman and promoter, among other things. And he was a bicycle salesman. And one of the brands of bicycles he sold was known as a Rambler, which was built by uh, the Jeffrey Company. And the Jeffrey Company decided they were going to build cars, which they also called Rambler. So Mr. North began to sell Jeffrey Ramblers, and he was very successful. He was sold their first car, from what I understand. So there's a connection there between the Thomas Jeffrey Company and John North Willys from the beginning. So old Mr. Jeffrey was giving the company over to his son to take over, and his son was quite an engineer, and he developed a four-wheel drive truck of his own. He didn't have so much interest in the cars. So he developed a truck that had four-wheel drive and four-wheel steering, and he called it the Quad, the Jeffrey Quad. And it was a remarkably mobile truck, uh, and it also drew the attention of the U.S. military eventually. But Jeffrey was selling an awful lot of them on the civilian market, and he happened to be on an ocean voyage. He was going to France to talk about a contract to sell some armored cars, and he was aboard the ocean liner Lusitania in 1915. And if you're familiar with history at all, that name might ring a bell because the Germans torpedoed the ocean liner that Mr. Jeffrey was on. And the ship sunk. But Mr. Jeffrey survived and he managed to come back to America. But he had to reevaluate his life after that experience. And he decided he didn't really want to spend his time in manufacturing. He wanted to have a more leisurely life. So he sold his Jeffrey Quad to a fellow by the name of Nash. Now, Mr. Nash uh, had been a former president of General Motors Company and one of the founders of Buick Automobiles. As as we look into this, all kinds of people and names are intertwined, and we're going to come back to Mr. Willie's in a minute. So so, uh, Charles Nash bought the the, uh, quad, and then the military decided they wanted to buy some for World War I, and everybody bought them. Nash ended up selling over 14,000 units during World War I alone, and they were remarkably successful and very, very famous, known around the world. So now it goes from Jeffrey to Nash, and Nash, uh, kind of the business faded. There was a, a lot of leftover surplus equipment after World War I, especially these four-wheel drive trucks, and the market was flooded with them by the military. So commercial sales were not good. Nash only survived by selling parts to keep his quads going, but he wasn't selling a lot of new trucks. And he decided to get out of the truck business all, almost altogether and focus on selling Nash cars, which he did. Uh, now I'm going to fast forward a little bit here. There was a, a point where Nash merged in 1954 with Kelvinator and Hudson to form the American Motors Company, which you are familiar with. AMC, you know of course. I had no idea that that's how AMC came to fruition. Yeah, Kelvinator actually made refrigerators. I don't know what else they did, but that was their claim to fame was uh, the refrigerator. So Nash, Hudson, and Kelvinator became AMC. So we're familiar with them. Uh, now, Mr. Willie's, of course, 
made cars and he made a lot of cars and he owned a lot of different companies. He was quite a, a, a business magnate and a couple of names of businesses you're familiar with probably, uh, Autolite spark plugs. He owned them at one time and he also owned, uh, uh, transmission company as well, uh, new enterprise gear, but he sold them off as things went on. And then along came the twenties and uh, there was a recession and he was not selling a lot of cars, but he had invested in all these companies and some of his creditors wanted to pressure him into bringing in someone else that they felt could run the company better than Mr. Willie's. So they brought in a guy by the name of Walter P. Chrysler, who again, you may have heard of. Is that now, now Walter Chrysler, uh, he had been involved with General Motors. He was a vice president there and he was involved with Buick as well, but he had his own ideas and he tried to take over the Willie's company in 1921 as he was vice president and general manager. And he tried to take the company over and shift their focus from a small economical four cylinder car to a larger six cylinder car that he had designed. But that didn't go over well, and he was forced out of the company. So here we are in 1921. Chrysler is trying to get his hands on the Willys company. And uh, as we all know, eventually Chrysler did own up, end up owning Jeep. And Chrysler ended up owning AMC as well. Uh, <laughs> so it, it all goes round and round. But uh, it wasn't until the World War II era that Willys got involved uh the Jeep became as popular as it is because the military decided they needed a light reconnaissance vehicle. And they put out some very stringent requirements. And in a very short time period, they wanted to get bids and, and prototypes produced. And uh, only a few companies even made an offer. And one of them was the Bantam Company of Butler, Pennsylvania. And they had a very good design. It was a little, a very light four-wheel drive, four-cylinder powered vehicle and the army liked it they tested the prototype and it was it was very successful ford offered one also that didn't have as much success they used the tractor engine and willie's had one that was fairly good and had a better engine than ford's but it uh, didn't quite meet the criteria so the government wanted to proceed with the production of these things further and they realized that although bantam had a very good design it was not really the company was not capable of producing them on the scale the military needed so they took bantam's design and gave it to willie's uh, which is kind of a underhanded thing to do but i guess when you're facing a war and the clouds are forming over europe you do what you have to do so willie's took over production and refined the design and uh, eventually it got to the point where Willys couldn't produce enough alone, and Ford was brought in to produce what they called the GPW, uh, uh, which was basically a clone of the Willys MB Jeep. And there were thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of those made for World War II, and I guess the rest is history, uh, as they say. And after the war, uh, Willys very astutely decided that there was a market for this late vehicle and there were so many fans returning home from the war all these soldiers who saw what a jeep could do and they decided to market this four-wheel drive vehicle as a an agricultural uh, or a, a vehicle for off-road use in in the states here and of course that was your cj2 and your cj2a and and on and on from there so uh 
that's kind of a, a, a brief rundown of, of the history of four-wheel drive, but there were a lot of other names involved. Uh, Walter, Coleman, Duplex, Marmon, Harrington, uh, a lot of lot of different companies. Napco made conversions early for uh, Chevy trucks in particular. Uh, but it it was really World War II that and the Jeep that made it possible for people like you and I to get rec- what turned into recreational vehicles in later years. I got to tell you, what's amazing about that history is the role that the U.S. government and those military contracts played in the evolution of the four-wheel drive vehicle, which it, it makes sense. It makes 100% sense that you know they would need not only agile, but vehicles that could go over every terrain and all terrain and a four-wheel drive vehicle fit that bill. So their appetite and their desire to reward those contracts, but it makes 100% sense. But I never realized the role that the government had in not only funding, but developing and really bringing four-wheel drives um, to the forefront of consumers through these military contracts. It's, it's it's really interesting. And I didn't realize it went back all the way through World War One. You know, you think of, yes, World War II, we all talk about World War II, um, that contract that you just mentioned, uh, the Bantam design produced by Willys, and then the GPWs also adding production from Ford. But you, you don't really you know, realize uh, how far it actually goes back into the early and mid 1800s. And one thing I will tell you, I'm sure when when Joseph Diplock in 1898, you know, patented that four wheel drive system, he didn't expect a bunch of, you know, rowdy 40 year olds to develop this this insatious love and, and enthusiasm for, you know, 60s, 70s and 80s classic four-wheel drive GMs and Jeeps and, you know, everything from square bodies to CJs and, you know, Ford dent sides and bulk sides as they became really daily drivers and and crossed over from being utility vehicles to everyday vehicles. It's it's absolutely amazing. And I really appreciate that background. And and that's the type of history that has to continue to live on that people need to to hear so it can live on for generations and generations to come. It's super important. Do you have any light on okay, so when you go past World War II and the 40s, um, and you started to really get into the the 50s and the 60s. Do you have any light on the history in the, in those generations? Yeah, uh, it, let's start in 1935. I think was the first time Marmon Harrington put a live front axle in a Ford pickup truck. I believe that was probably the first pickup as we know it that was made as a four by four. And then uh, Dodge would be the next one that took over. Uh, as a result of the World War II Dodge Army trucks, three-quarter ton trucks that they made, the Dodge Power Wagon was born, which was basically a, a different body on a World War II military chassis. So Dodge and, and Ford, uh, the Ford conversion were in there. Then in the early 50s, NAPCO started to make conversions for Chevrolets. I think that started with the maybe the first series of 1955 uh, they couldn't do it before that because Chevrolet used a torque tube to drive the rear axle, and it wasn't really practical to operate that from a transfer case. So uh, the NAPCO conversion brought Chevrolet into the fold, and uh, International was not far behind with their own front axle drive. And then, of course, 
I guess it would be about 1959, I can't say for sure, but Chevrolet started to make their own front axle drive, four-wheel drives, and it wasn't too long after that that Ford did as well. Uh, but the name Dodge Power Wagon dates back to 1946, and it's kind of come and gone a couple times, but everybody still knows what a power wagon is. That's interesting. I find it very interesting that the mass market four-wheel drive really started out as conversions, right? Before the the actual manufacturers themselves adopted it and, and started putting transfer cases and, and uh, live uh, front axles in them, that you had all these companies that, that did conversions to these trucks. And then eventually they were put out of business because the, the manufacturer started manufacturing them as four wheel drives. That's some pretty interesting information. Now you mentioned a name earlier, which I don't know if you can shed any light on, but we had a, a podcast guest in season one who actually ended up saving a international harvester, a very early international harvester truck that had a Coleman conversion. Can you talk a little bit more about the conversions and and the different companies that did those conversions? Yeah, Coleman is a real interesting one. They started in Colorado. uh, And I think primarily their reason for being was to make vehicles that could maneuver in the Rocky Mountains and plow snow to keep roadways open. Uh, They built a lot of trucks for the state highway and the military. And uh, it wasn't until about 1954 that they started to make conversions for other trucks. But the Coleman is noted for their uh, their particular drive design. And from the outside, you can tell it looks like it's got a big hubcap on the outside of the, the front wheel. There's no locking hub. It's just a big round dome. That's uh, That indicates that it's a, uh, a Coleman. And they made all kinds of vehicles, so a lot of special military stuff and uh some things for switching rail cars and uh, shuttling out uh, big airplanes on airports, four-wheel drive tugs and things like that. But but Coleman was a, a big player in the business and they had a very good design and it was unique and it, it applied full traction to both wheels in the front axle at all times. So they were very successful. Um, Marvin Harrington dates back to 1931. Uh, they made the first Ford conversions and they made a lot of conversions right up until the last few years even. Uh, Mormon is a name that a car person might recognize. They were one of the few people that built a V16 car in the 1930s. They were a very high-end luxury automobile. And, uh, of course, sales weren't that good through the Depression. But uh, Mr. Marmon, uh got together with a General Harrington who had some military experience and was familiar with uh, four-wheel drive vehicles. And they branched off into making front axle drives and they were very successful with their Ford conversions and they made thousands of those. So that was a, another big name in, in the conversion business. There were some people, believe it or not, that made conversions for Model T Fords. Uh, like everything else uh, about a Model T, they came with with no frills whatsoever. And uh, Henry Ford is credited with being the, the purpose for or the reason why a, a aftermarket exists because you could make uh, anybody with a small business could make a part 
for afford to be an upgrade and it would sell. And so there were thousands of manufacturers all over the country that made gadgets and gizmos for Ford Model Ts, including front axle drives. I've never seen one in person, but I've seen pictures and drawings of them and they're, they're pretty interesting. I imagine they go just about like a billy goat. If there is one classic or antique four wheel drive that I don't think I'd want to be in, it's a, a Model T when you're, <laughs> uh, when you're shifting that transfer case into four wheel drive, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't know how that would work. And, and the funny thing about a Model T is they don't really have anything for brakes to begin with. So it would be a challenge off-road. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, because they were not a hydraulic braking system. I know that was one of Ford's biggest cruxes to keep pricing down was that they never adopted the hydraulic braking systems that a lot of the other manufacturers adopted. And, and it put the Model T behind, actually, Uh but that's interesting. These conversion kits, you know, essentially were they the front axle, a transfer case and uh, a drive shaft or were they just the kind of those three pieces or was there more involvement to these conversion kits? Well, I think they were more involved in that and they weren't actually kits. I, I don't know that you could buy one as an individual. They were factory installed or dealer installed, but by and large, uh, the four wheel drive required uh a different frame because they needed a lot of ground clearance to get that front drive shaft up to the front axle. So they usually had high arch springs and they were usually very heavy spring packs because they were meant for heavy duty service. So there'd be the springs. Sometimes the frames were different on the larger vehicles, uh, but primarily the springs. And as you said, the uh, front axle drive shaft transfer case, and of course the control mechanism for all that. And uh, other than that, it was, it was pretty much uh what you would expect to see in there, except on the larger trucks that would also have plows or winches or power takeoffs for those pieces of equipment. That is super interesting. I had no idea. I had always heard of conversions before, but I always thought the manufacturers just, they were filling demand for these, you know, to have purpose-built utilitarian work trucks and they just needed it. I didn't realize that what really made the broader market was was these conversions. So as we've gotten through, you know, the early 1800s all the way up into the 50s, can you bestow some knowledge and history even further as you got into the 50s, the 60s, the 70s and 80s and, and on? Well, I, I that's not really my bailiwick, but I'll try a little bit. Uh, of course, we'll go back to the Willys Jeep because they have a soft spot in my heart. Willys was bought out by the Kaiser uh, corporation in 1963, and that's when the name Willys ended. And of course, uh, Kaiser ended up being folded into the American Motors Corporation, and uh, which comes back to Nash, who was with Jeffrey and built the uh, four-wheel drive truck in World War One. So they kind of came full circle. But I think what uh, to back up a little bit to what you were talking about, how the conversions led to mass production. The manufacturers are always looking for a way to make a dollar. And when they see that these conversions can sell and will sell, they immediately think, well, why don't we do that instead of letting somebody else make money on the conversion? So it's uh, the innovation and the creativity is always there, but is there a, a profit motive behind it? And when you put the two of them together, that's when we all benefit from these great vehicles that they put together. And luckily, that World War II idea for a light reconnaissance vehicle that uh, that Willys started to build in such large numbers never really left us. We, we've been 
transformed from one way into another through through Willys into Kaiser, Jeep Corporation into American Motors, Jeep, and and on and on. But uh, the seats get a little softer and the springs are a little smoother. Maybe we now have air conditioning and heat, but it's still a darn four-wheel drive billy goat that we have a blast with, whether we're going you know, driving on the beach or, or climbing a, through a mountain or, or fording a river, it's still that same basic design from World War uh, World War II and, and earlier. That's amazing. I mean, it's, it's interesting. Now a lot of them are electronic controlled and, you know, we have full-time four-wheel drive. Yeah, I got to tell you, uh, I learned a lot today. And, and I, Steve, I really can't thank you enough for not only talking about the ATCA, the Antique Truck Club of America, you know, their history, your involvement, your own collection. But the biggest takeaway from our conversation today really is that the history of the four-wheel drive. And I know a lot of our listeners will have learned a lot today from you know, everything that you laid out. I'm, I'm sure there wasn't one classic four by four listener out there that even knew who Joseph Diplock was, right? <laughs> so that alone is an immense amount of value. So, you know, Steve, I really can't thank you enough, you know, for your time, your participation on the, on the classic four by four podcast today. For all of our listeners out there who don't follow the Antique Truck Club of America on all the social channels, especially Instagram, please follow the Antique Truck Club of America. And most importantly, uh, check out their website. It's antiquetruckclub.org. And if you're in one of their chapters, you know, please join the national organization, get involved in, in your local chapter. And if, if you have the ability to go to the annual uh, national event, it's in McCungie, right? McCungie. McCungie in McCungie, Pennsylvania, which what time of year is that again, Steve? It's Father's Day weekend, June 16th and 17th. So Father's Day weekend in McCungie, Pennsylvania. If you are looking for something fun to do with your family, please head out and head to the Antique Truck Club of America's national event. But get involved and make sure that this amazing history and these amazing events continue to live on for for generations and generations because it's all about community whether you're looking at trucks on your phone on social media all day or you're out at the uh the national event looking at 900 unique antique trucks and, and classic four-wheel drives uh, it's all about bringing the community together and 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 keeping this enthusiasm and the community that we built alive and well and, and and always growing and bringing new people into it so steve again thank you so much for your time today i really appreciate it um and uh i hope to see you out father's day weekend at the uh the big national event Thanks, Chris. It's been a pleasure. That was some seriously deep 4x4 history dropped on us by Steve Skrinovich from the Antique Truck Club of America. Make sure you follow the ATCA on all the social channels, check out their website, become a member, and check out some of their events. But stay tuned for our next episode with Ryan Duvall from Harvester Homecoming, where he shares some insight and insider knowledge on the development of the new International Harvester Scout by the VW Group. 